and we have been taking our time to study the various doctrines and teachings of the Word of God. And today we, we find ourselves in this series on the Holy Spirit. We're new to this study together. It's just the second message, and we come together today to continue to answer the question, who is the Holy Spirit? And today we're going to answer that question by talking about something that every believer has the ability to do, and it ought to sober us. It it should really get our attention and cause us to think about how we are relating to God and the Holy Spirit. I want to talk to you today about the fact that the Holy Spirit may be stifled or quenched. We're going to study that together. Uh, Kind of introductory thoughts will be that we will look at the various ways that we can sin against the Holy Spirit, thereby stifling Him. And then I want to talk to you about what it means to quench the Holy Spirit. When we get to that section today, it's going to be more about addressing symptoms in our life. How many of us realize that recognizing a symptom is only like half the battle, right? If you went to your doctor and he said, wow, you've got these symptoms, be on your way, go home, Uh, we'd probably find another doctor, right, on the way home. So it's only half the battle. Knowing what's wrong with you or seeing the symptoms really only tells you that there's a root cause that, that gives you the symptoms. It's kind of an indication, right? It's an indicator. And we don't want to just throw medicine at symptoms. We want to deal with root issues. Why does a person have these symptoms in their body? And what can cause them to overcome the symptoms? Now, there aren't always ready and good answers to those questions, are there? Today, spiritually speaking, I want you to go beyond the symptoms because that's what's healthy for you spiritually. If you, at the end of this study, say, hey, I've got some of these symptoms, I want you to ask the question, why? Why am I doing this? What is causing me in my heart to relate to the Holy Spirit in an unhealthy way? And what things in my heart need rooted out so that I can be healthy spiritually and so that the Holy Spirit can truly fill me or control me as I yield to it? So that's what I want you to do today with our study. Now, at the end of our study, I have a time of application where I want to read several verses to you about a particular sin that I think Satan uses today in a powerful and prevalent way in the modern church to stifle the Spirit. And I'm not going to say a whole lot. I'm just going to let God speak for himself today by reading these verses. And I want us all to take those things to heart. And if we are guilty of this sin that erodes the unity of the body, then I want us just to confess that sin, to repent of that sin, and to receive the forgiveness and restoration that God gives us so that we're not stifling the Spirit of God in us and among us. There are several ways that we can sin against the Holy Spirit and stifle Him. I'm not going to look at these with you today in a comprehensive way. Some of these will probably be a part of future messages and sermons in this series. The first one that we'll look at is that we can actually resist the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, you have an example of that where the preacher is preaching and he says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Now, I just want to pause there for a minute and point out that that's pretty strong language, right? 
So uh, you wouldn't feel very good about yourselves this morning if I were to say that in the sermon, right? Like you're just a bunch of stiff-necked people and uncircumcised. We don't talk like that today. Maybe we should a little bit more, but that's pretty straightforward preaching, isn't it? I mean, he just goes right at them. You guys are stiff-necked and uncircumcised. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. So there was a resistance against the revelation from the Holy Spirit, the prophetic word concerning Jesus and the words of God that the prophets preached and the people who were supposed to be listening to that message and receiving that message and obeying that message rejected that message and even persecuted the ones who were delivering the message. And God calls that through his preacher resisting the Holy Spirit. Now, we could debate the spiritual condition of the audience, and today uh, we're assuming that most who are gathered here today, a good number of you, are believers, but even believers can be guilty of this. We hear a message of some kind. It could be in our Bible study. It could be on the radio, on the television, in our life group, at a church gathering on a Sunday. We hear God's revealed word to us, and God speaks to us through his word, through the messenger, and we have a decision to make at that moment and in the oncoming days. What are we going to do with this truth that's been given to us? What will we do with it? Well, what do we do with it? Do we follow through? Do we make growth steps? Do we allow God to continue his renovation process of us from the inside out because we decide we're going to be obedient to the word of God or do we resist the scriptures? Maybe we even get angry with the messenger because how dare that person speak in that way? I hope we're not guilty of resisting the spirit. I believe this is a way to stifle the spirit. We also learn that grieving the Spirit is a real thing in Scripture. Now, before we read the passage here where it talks about grieving the Spirit, I want to say to you that this also serves us well as we build our theology of the Holy Spirit. Beyond just identifying a way to stifle the Spirit in our lives and to not submit to His control, it also reveals to us a little bit about the personality of the Holy Spirit. Apparently, the personality, the, the Holy Spirit can experience emotions. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. And in saying that, we are also laying the foundation in our doctrine that the Holy Spirit has personality. He is a real, live being. He has personality. Now, we don't see him. I'm not saying that he is corporeal or that he has a body. But what I am saying to you is he is a person. He is a real entity, a separate part of the Godhead from the other two, the Father and the Spirit. We dealt with that in our last uh, message in the series. But the Holy Spirit is a separate entity. He can experience emotion. He has personality. He's not just some mystical force that exists in the universe. Paul says in verse 25 of our chapter here, since you put away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath or your anger. 
And don't give the devil an opportunity. I'll pause there. The way you give the devil an opportunity in this context is by not dealing with the issues that irritate and anger you in an appropriate and efficient way. That's the way you give the devil an opportunity. That opportunity is the opportunity for anger and for bitterness and resentment to reign in your heart, which corrupts you and defiles many. That's the opportunity that Satan has when you don't deal with anger issues appropriately. Verse 28, the thief must no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language is to come from your mouth, but only that which is good for building up someone so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. All bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, slander must be removed from you along with all malice. That kind, of, that kind of deals with all the stuff that Paul mentions earlier in this same passage about all the stuff we're supposed to put away from us and no longer do. All of this is to be removed from you. Instead, be kind, compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. The flavor of this text is that if we decide not to obey these things, and we decide to be, bitty, uh, to be bitter, angry, full of wrath and shouting and slandering each other, along with any kind of malice, we refuse to be kind and compassionate and forgiving as God forgave us in Christ, then we are grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Now think about it this way with me. We believe that part of our teaching of the Holy Spirit, part of our belief system is that when we become believers, simultaneously, instantaneously, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. The, Jesus said that he was going to pray to the Father, that he would send us another comforter of the same kind, a comforter that would not just be with us, but that he would be in us. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside of us to aid us and to help us, and not just in a physical sense beside us, but in a spiritual sense in us. God lives in us through the Holy Spirit. And because of that, everything we say and do, everything we think, every motivation we have, God is a discerner of all of those things through the Holy Spirit. And when we decide to disobey God, when we decide to go against the commands that we have here in Ephesians 4 and elsewhere in the Scripture, we bring God with us through and into that sin because the Holy Spirit lives in us. Now think about that for a moment. That's what grieves the Holy Spirit of God. He is in us and with us, and we take him into these places where we should not go mentally and, and with our motivation and with our actions physically, and we sin against him, and he's right there in us, and he is having to go through that muck and through that garbage with us. Every single time we sin, God is there through the Holy Spirit. And we take the Godhead through the Holy Spirit through that time of sin and degradation and it grieves his heart because it's not what he has planned for us. It's not what he desires for us. He knows that is not best for us. We grieve him and we stifle him in our lives. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that we can insult the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 26 for if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, 
but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. If anyone disregards Moses' law, he dies without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and insulted the Spirit of grace? We know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Willful, habitual disobedience insults the Holy Spirit. And God says, I will correct my people. Now, we're not going to unpack this passage totally. Perhaps it will come later in the series with the next one, which is blasphemy. Look at Matthew 12. Because of this, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. Blaspheming, speaking against the Holy Spirit, attributing the works of God to Satan. God says there is no remedy for that because it is at the heart of unbelief. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, we have stifling, as some translations give it, or quenching. We can quench the Holy Spirit of God. Now, don't lose sight of that. Let's see, John Piper weighs in. I love what he says. God has granted us, speaking of the church, the power and authority to restrict or release what the Spirit does in the local church. Think about that. That's the power that we have. God says you can quench the Spirit. You can stifle the Spirit in the local assembly. Don't do that. Don't stifle. So, so he has given us the ability to either release what the Spirit wants to do in us and among us or to stifle the same through submission humility and obedience to the revealed Word of God, we allow the Spirit to work powerfully in us and among us as is intended for us. If we don't, we have the power to restrict and to stifle. Piper goes on to say, the Spirit obviously desires to work in your life and in your church. To use Paul's metaphor or analogy, the Spirit is like a fire whose flame we want to be careful not to quench or extinguish. The Holy Spirit wants to intensify the heat of His presence among us, to inflame our hearts and to fill us with the warmth of His indwelling power. And Paul's exhortation is a warning to all of us, lest we become part of the contemporary bucket brigade that stands ready to douse his activity with the water of legalism, fear, and a flawed theology. The modern evangelical church, I think, has been scared away from studying and applying the doctrines of the Holy Spirit by those in recent church history who have abused and misunderstood the doctrine. Is that a good response to anything? The answer is no. We're going to learn about that in another text of Scripture as we continue on. Just because there have been believers who have misunderstood, misapplied, and abused a particular doctrine does not mean the church should be afraid of embracing what the Bible really teaches about that doctrine. And such has been the case, I think, in some situations when it comes to the Holy Spirit. 
So as we continue on our journey in this study, we're not going to be afraid of what the Bible teaches us about the Holy Spirit. And we're going to embrace that as truth, and we're going to apply it appropriately and, and understand and know the Holy Spirit hopefully better than we did when we started. But we cannot be afraid of it, and we can't stay away from it, and we certainly must not minimize it because others abuse it. That's never a right response, never. And I think the church may be guilty in many cases of minimizing the Spirit because of a fear and an anxiety that others who have abused the Spirit through misunderstanding and misapplication of Scripture. And that certainly is not where we want to find ourselves. So what does it mean to stifle or quench the Holy Spirit? Let's talk about that. Well, technically speaking, the definition, the word stifle is used in some translations. I like that way of translating the word quench. You see, fire is often used in reference to the Holy Spirit. To quench the Spirit means to extinguish or smother as one would a fire. Everyone who is responsible, who's ever built a fire, understands this concept. When you leave that fire pit, you want to make sure that no dangerous potential still exists in the coals of that fire. So you extinguish it. You render it ineffective. You render it powerless. You, you completely stifle it. You put it out. It's exactly the opposite of what we want to do with the Spirit in our own hearts and in our own lives. In fact, we want to fan those flames, don't we? We want that flame burning as brightly as God intended it to burn. We want it to be as, as warm and, and, and as effective as possible because that's what God intended for the Spirit to be in our lives. Don't stifle it. Now, we move to what are these manifestations or symptoms? How do I know if I'm stifling the Spirit in my own life? I want to give you several of these, and then I want to go to that application phase and deal with one particular sin that I think Satan uses to stifle the Spirit in a corporate sense among us. So, what are some of these manifestations of stifling? Well, first of all, despising the supernatural work of the Spirit. First Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, don't stifle the Spirit, don't despise prophecies, but test all things, hold on to what is good. What is he talking about here? Here's what I think he's talking about. You stifle the Spirit by getting to the point where you despise the dissemination of the truth of the revealed Word of God. He mentions prophecies. The, the communication of what God's message was by God's messenger to God's people. And, and there were abuses there, as there are abuses today. There are men who are going to stand before their congregations today and preach and mishandle and misapply and misinterpret the Word of God. It's happening all over the place. In fact, in a lot of those places, every seat in the worship center is full. But what you hear does you no good spiritually because it's not a good representation of the Word of God. Now, does that mean that we throw out going to church altogether? If we have a bad experience in a church with someone who doesn't know what they're talking about and they preach falsehood instead of truth, do we, do we say, okay, that happened to me, so I'm just going to walk away. not going to have anything to do with it. Now, that may seem trivial or maybe even silly to you, but people do respond that way. I've talked to them in an effort to try to rescue them and, and cause them to see the importance of, of coming back into the faith community and re-engaging. 
But those feelings are deep. Those hurts are, are wounds in their soul. There are some who've been misled to the point where it's infected their entire life. They've been misled to buy into this health and wealth, prosperity gospel. Maybe you, you've talked to some of those people, those dear people. Many of them I've talked to are believers who are now not attending church anywhere because they got burned out on a false gospel. They got burned out on trying to get more, and it just led them down a path to emptiness, no fulfillment, no satisfaction, a materialistic Christianity that had nothing to offer them of any lasting value at all, not even attending church today. I think it's a little bit about what Paul's talking about. Don't allow the abuses and the excesses by those who don't know what they're talking about, to push you away. Instead, what are we supposed to do? Test all things and hold on to what is good. Filter out the bad stuff and keep the good stuff and don't despise the act of preaching and teaching because there are those who do it poorly or wrongly. We can stifle the Spirit by despising the supernatural work of the Spirit through the Word of God and through preaching. Don't allow yourself to get to that point. Keep your eyes on Jesus. No individual and no person should be able to run you away from the faith community. Keep your eyes on Jesus, not on people. The second way that we can know if we're stifling the Spirit I think, is by neglecting the gifting of the Spirit. It's interesting the words that you find from Paul to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul says, do not neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. And then in 2 Timothy 1.6, he says, therefore, I remind you to keep ablaze, fan the flames, the, that the, the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. The, the gift of God, the, the spiritual giftedness that he had received that was verified by man but generated by God. The genesis was the Holy Spirit of this gifting. We're not all gifted or called the way that Timothy was, surely. Timothy was that first pastor there probably of a church at Ephesus. And he had some issues. He had anxiety issues. He had physical issues. He, he wasn't as bold as he always should have been. He didn't have the courage that he should have. And, and Paul poured into him encouragement and challenge to, to coach him up and mentor him to where he needed to be so that he could lead well and be courageous in that wicked, perverse, carnal culture of Ephesus. What a place for a shy, meek person to be. That's where Timothy was. And Paul wanted him to be bold. He said, Timothy, don't neglect it. Fan it into flames. Give it air. Keep it ablaze. Don't neglect your gifting. I wonder where we are with that today. Are we stifling the Spirit? You know, sometimes our giftedness, the, the practice and exercise of our giftedness in a way that brings God glory and in a way that is good for the faith community as God intended it to be, takes us out of our comfort zone, doesn't it? It really does. Some of you are gifted in wonderful ways and, and called by God, and yet you, you stop short because it's out of your comfort zone. There are some, some young men here today who are probably in that particular position that you know God has gifted you and, and you know he wants you to lead well, but you're just not comfortable with leadership. 
Hey, take a step of growth today. I want to tell you that this fall, beginning in, in September, if you're one of those young men or older men for that matter, it doesn't matter if you're mature or young and you want to learn more about leading and you want to lead well, we're going to have a, a uh, leadership development series offered on Sunday mornings. More will be released about this later. But some of you men need to be thinking about that. No matter what your age is, you need to step up to the plate and, and, and get yourselves immersed in Scripture and see what the Bible has to say about leading well. It'll benefit you in your home because you're supposed to be leading there anyway. And it certainly is going to equip you for leading in the assembly. But some men are like, no, man, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I don't want to be a deacon or an elder in the church. I, that scares me to death. Hey, hey, don't neglect. Don't neglect what God's given you. Some of you are gifted in that way, and some of you certainly could be called for that. And it certainly is a, a wonderful, uh, sacred desire to, to have that desire in your heart. Don't let fear and anxiety keep you from being everything that God's made you to be for the good of the assembly and His glory. I want to say this, qualified male leadership is the only claim to continuance that any local assembly has. You read the New Testament. That's it. And if our men are scared to lead or it's out of their comfort zone too much, we need to encourage them to do that, to step up and to move beyond those fears. I want to encourage you to do that, guys. Don't neglect it. Don't neglect it. Don't stifle the spirit. Some of you are gifted in other ways that don't involve church leadership. And you stop and you hesitate and you pause because to, to do that work in the assembly would, would take you out of your comfort zone. Let's take a step of faith over fear today and courage over anxiety by the Spirit and not neglect our gift. The next thing that we might see as a symptom would be this, refusing to passionately express worship in church gatherings. I love this in Ephesians 5. Look here with me, beginning in verse 18. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions. It's kind of a comparison contrast, isn't it? But be filled by the Spirit. The same way a drunk man is controlled by the drink, the same way a person can be under the influence of alcohol, not in an irreverent, worldly, carnal way. Don't, don't, don't mix up the, the comparison. But, but we need to be controlled by, filled by, dominated by the Spirit. That's what he's saying. It's a comparison and a contrast. We're not supposed to be drunk, but we are supposed to allow the Spirit. We're not supposed to allow alcohol or any other substance to control us, but we are to allow the Spirit to control us, to dominate us. And the evidence of being dominated by the Spirit is what? Look at, look at the next verse in verse 19. The evidence of this is, is passionate, purposeful, godly, biblically sound worship. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody or making music from your heart to the Lord. That's the evidence so if I'm not doing this, it's a symptom that something is wrong in my heart. And we don't all have to sing like Pavarotti. But we bring our joyful noise to the Lord. And we celebrate His greatness. And we celebrate Jesus together. You know, Psalms speaks to the very words of Scripture. Some of you have sang out of a psalter before in your past. You know what that is, literally. You sing the words of Scripture put to music. 
by principle, I think we can apply it this way, that our songs ought to be biblically sound and accurate, whether we're singing the very words of Scripture or other words of songs that are condoned in this passage, by the way. We can sing those songs. They're mentioned here. I'll, I'll, I'll explain them to you. But, but we, we sing in a way, we sing the songs that are biblically accurate. It shouldn't contradict known truth from Scripture. Very important. We sing hymns too, don't we? Hymns are songs of praise to God. They elevate God. They magnify God. They, they celebrate God and who He is. And then we have the spiritual songs. Many people believe that these are songs that, that are testimonials of the human experience with God. People who know God, who, who have seen God work, want to testify of, of God's working. There are other people who believe that these were kind of like impromptu things that, that people in the church would break out into song as they testified of the greatness and goodness of God in their life. That's how the church is supposed to worship. That is a spirit-controlled church where the spirit is not stifled. I want us all to consider how we view our time of corporate worship. What is that to us? As we stood here this morning and our worship band led us, what was that experience to us? Why did we sing? How did we sing? What did we sing? Did we sing at all? Did we worship? Take an analysis of, of yourself and deeply, deeply look at what defines your worship with the church. Some of us, sadly, can't wait for it to be over. That's the attitude of some Christians who, who come to church for the worship. Just can't wait for it to be over. Some people are disinterested because it isn't everything they want. Listen. Worship is not for you. It's not for me. It's for God. I'm, I'm reminded of the pastor who was greeting people at the door, and one of the people left, one of the parishioners left and talked to him and said, I wasn't very happy with the worship today. It didn't, didn't, didn't really satisfy me. And the pastor said, well, that's good because it wasn't for you. It was for someone else. It was for God. And while that seems to be a little bit of an arrogant response, it's a good reminder for all of us that this time that we spend worshiping is not about us. It's about God. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a psalm. It's a hymn. It's a spiritual song, all centralizing and focusing not on the human experience, but on God. While the human experience may be a part of these songs, especially the spiritual songs, the central focus is not the human experience, but it's how God in His grace, in His mercy, and in His power affects and changes forever the human experience. That's what it's about, and that's what worship is all about. So don't get confused. But if you're evidencing the symptom that music and worship for you with the gathering is not all about God in a passionate way, then you're probably stifling the Spirit. We can also rebel against the Spirit. Rebelling against the Spirit and His sanctifying work, that's what our passage in Ephesians 4 earlier was talking about. No foul language is to come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. 
You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. All bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, and slander must be removed from you along with all malice. That is the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That is the change that's supposed to be taking place in all of us as we submit to the control, the filling of the Spirit. But when we rebel against that and we decide to be bitter and angry and full of wrath and do all malice and evil, then we're rebelling and we are stifling. The final symptom is relying on any source other than the Holy Spirit for anything, for everything we do in life or ministry. Doing things in our own strength for our own purposes with total and complete wrong motivations. Look at Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to be living by the power, ministering by the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything we do is supposed to be done by him, not something else and not for any other reason. So how can we fix this? The first thing we can do is we can let go of pride and self-determination, just let go of it. Zechariah reminds us, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It was true in that prophetic word, and it's true today in every situation. It's, it's not by our pride and not by our self-determination that we're supposed to be serving our great God, but by the power of the Spirit of God. Let go of pride and self-determination. Depend on him for your strength. Find rest there and satisfaction. Also, ask God, pray to God to control you, to fill you with his Holy Spirit as you submit. Luke 11 reminds us, if you then are who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Ask him for what is necessary for us to submit and be controlled by the Spirit. Make it a prayer request. And finally, be in the Spirit-generated Word of God. There's no better way, there's no better way to conquer this reliance on other sources of strength than the Holy Spirit than to be in His Word. We have this given to us in 2 Peter 1. We have the prophetic Word strongly confirmed. You will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you should know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit generated Word of God. The Spirit is the one that gave the Word of God. In a miraculous way, he moved people, the writers of Scripture, with their own education, own experience and background, own writing styles, all of that preserved, and somehow we got every word of God's self-revelation that we're supposed to have. And the only way it happened was through the Holy Spirit. So be in that word and obey that word. Submit to that word and rely on it for your wisdom and your strength. Now, as we close our time today, I want us to think about a sin that is prevalent probably in any church. I'm not just singling out our church, but I've seen it do so much destruction. It's, it's been about 30 years that we've been in occupational ministry. And 
I've seen this sin infect churches and stifle the spirit. And I want to address it this morning with, with several passages of scripture. You'll bear with me as we're moving on. But it's the sin of gossip, slander, loose lips and talking about people behind their back without people. In a lot of cases, it exaggerates things that even can just totally fantasize things and make up things and say things that aren't even true. But it's harmful to the family and it stifles the spirit. And I want us to consider these verses when we're tempted to listen to or to participate in gossip. I love what James says in James 1.26. If anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Did you get that? It doesn't matter how busy somebody is in a church, how much a person does in a church, or how much they get noticed in a church. If they don't bridle their tongue, all of that is worthless. You see that? It's all worthless. Proverbs 21, 23 says, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. How many of us learned that this last week? Anybody want to admit to that? Oh, nobody is. Okay, maybe we need to preach a little longer today. Proverbs 26, 20 says, for the lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, whisperer, quarreling ceases. Psalm 101, verse 5 says, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. That's God speaking. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. That's pretty strong stuff. Proverbs 6 is very interesting. It brings a lot of clarity to the topic. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. That is a strong word. It's used of the most wicked, perverse sins, okay? Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Now, you can sow discord in many ways, but gossip's one of the best. It's an abomination to God. Don't do it and don't listen to it. You know, there's a simple rule that I learned a long time ago. If you're not part of the problem or part of the solution, you shouldn't be talking or listening. Proverbs 20 and verse 19. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with the simple, i.e. foolish, babbler. Proverbs 17, 4, an evildoer listens to wicked lips and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. Proverbs 19, 5, a false witness will not go unpunished and he who breathes out lies will not escape. Now here's what we all should aspire to do. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, we need to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Don't put your nose where it doesn't belong and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Live quietly, mind your own business, work with your own hands. A good thing for all believers in a church to aspire to. So I leave you with those words today. I want us to carefully consider and allow them to deeply touch us. I don't want us to be guilty of stifling the Spirit in our own individual lives, or on a corporate level, especially through this sin of gossip. Let's kill it. Let's put that sin to death among us. No good comes from it, only destruction.
Could we all stand together, please? And we'll be closed in prayer as our worship team comes to lead us out. If you're visiting with us today, we're thankful that you're here. We love that. And I would love the opportunity uh, to meet you as well. If you don't mind stopping in our welcome area to your far right before you uh, exit and leave our campus, please give us the opportunity to meet you today. We have a gift for you as well. Maybe you need prayer. Maybe God's spoken to your heart. You could also stop by. There'll be pastors there today, and we would love to pray with you. But let's close. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the power of your word. It just cuts to the chase. It speaks to the root problems. And Father, we've talked about some symptoms today that could be, that could be alive and well in, in some of our lives. And we just pray that if these things are symptoms that we have, that we would ask all the right questions to get to the root of the matter, that we would see this sin out of our lives because we deal with the roots behind it. Help us to be honest today, God. And if we're involved in any sin that would stifle the Spirit, may we humbly confess it, admit it, turn from it through repentance, and allow you to change us so that we can live, think, and speak properly. We remember the havens as well, Father, again, that you would just put your blessing on them, comfort their hearts, bring them wholeness and healing, and allow them to grow through this process. In the strong and powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed. Thank you.